morning. Long time no see. How is everybody? Good. Good. Who's ready to learn? I am the teaching pastor. I'm going to learn something today. Not that you don't learn every Sunday. David's going to kill me when he gets back. <clears throat> um, so we have been in this series called Reveal for the past few weeks. Um, basically, we've been looking at the life of Jesus uh, since, since Christmas. Um, there were some events around Christmas that, that helped, in a sense, reveal to people that, that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, but through those revelations, uh, we've, also, we've also learned that he was revealing things about God and about himself to people um, through these events. Uh, week one, we talked about the star um, and about how it brought you know, the wise men. Um, and what really that taught us was that, that Jesus was opening up salvation to the world. Um, for a long time, there was a division between the East and the West, and David talked about how these people were from the East and how they weren't part of necessarily the Jewish or Hebrew tradition. Um, and they learned through reading texts about, about Jesus, and then they came to visit him. And then we talked about uh, Jesus' baptism. Um, really interesting thing about uh, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. It's one of the only places in the Bible where the entire Trinity is present at the same time. Uh, God the Father speaks from the heavens. The Spirit of God lights on the shoulder of Jesus, the Son of God. They're all there, all at the same time. Um, amazing little theological. They can all be at the same place at the same time. It's a really beautiful moment. Um, Jesus uses this moment to establish his authority. I am the Son of God. See, we're all here, you know. So this week we're in Matthew 14. Um, this, this passage holds a lot of personal value for me, um, but I think it also speaks volumes about Jesus' plan for us. And so on this last day of reveal, I want to talk to you a little bit about what Jesus reveals to his disciples and what he reveals to us through this passage in Matthew 14. Come with me, if you will, a long, long time ago, some 25 years. I love being in a multi-generational church because some of the members are like, oh, 25 years, no big deal. You know, I see a few young people going, oh my gosh, 25 years, so long ago. It was a long time ago, long, long time ago. Um, I was a wee lad, and then uh, I was in children's church. So I, went to, I went to a church where we, um, like when the adults were in big church, uh, the children from about like just out of diapers until about middle school, we had our own church service, and it usually consisted of a few songs, you know, B-I-B-L-E, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, a very fast scripture reading. Um, and there was a deacon at the church named Brother James, and he would get up and he would tell us 
what the passage was about, just the miniest of mini-sermons ever. And then generally, after that, was my favorite part, super watered-down Kool-Aid, generic sandwich cookies, and some really terrible Christian children's entertainment. <clears throat> Usually the morality tells. I love the really heavy-handed ones that were like, <laughs> I'm going to cheat on my math test. Cheating is bad. Yes, cheating is bad. Good job, cartoon sidekick. <sighs> so one of, the, one of the, the hallmarks, one of the experiences in children's church, um, after giving his mini-sermon, Brother James would stand up and he would say, who's ready to ask Jesus into their heart? And quite frankly, it, what it meant was you were going to miss the movie. Because um, what they did was they took you into a, an adjoining room. Um, and the one time that I did go, uh, that I volunteered to go, um, I felt like maybe this was something I should do. Um, I went in and there was a, a little uh, construction paper booklet with some mimeographed like, worksheets on them. Um, and you would fill in the blanks and like, look up scriptures and they'd give you stickers. And if you did that four Sundays in a row, then they would call your parents and they'd set up your baptism. And hallelujah, Lord in heaven, you were saved. Um, to like a six-year-old kid, sometimes that's not the be-all, end-all. And I know now, as an adult, that my, my salvation was a, was a journey. Um, but I did do this. Um, and so for all intents and purposes, at my church growing up, I was saved from an early age. Let's fast forward, um, not too far after that, to June 8th, 1998. Because um, I like to crack jokes about it. You all know that I'm Baptist. Um, one, of the, one of the things that Baptist youth do during the summer is go to Falls Creek in Davis, Oklahoma. Um, and in 1998, this was back in the day, uh, sound like such a crotchety old man. It was an, it was an open air tabernacle, um, no walls, and the benches were literally two by fours that were screwed together. And you had a choice when you came in. There were fans about halfway back, and you could either sit behind the fans and not die, but you couldn't hear the sermon. Um, if you wanted to hear the sermon, you had to sit in front of the fans and then, you know, thank God for salvation because you were probably dying after that. But, um, so on June 8th, 1998, I was sitting in the tabernacle at Falls Creek. And back in the day, you had to wear pants. Again, I sound like such an old man. Uh, there I was, sweating to death. We sat in front of the fans. Uh, why, I don't know. But we were in front of the fans, and I'm dying. There's a hundred kids just jam-packed around us. But something about the sermon stuck with me. It was from Matthew 14. And at the end of the service, like they always do at the end of every service at Falls Creek, they asked if anyone wanted to come forward. There was an invitation. And I responded. Because the sermon spoke to me. And as I walked down the aisle, I saw a super familiar face. The guy that had been my Sunday school teacher since I was a little kid had volunteered to take invitations that night. Um, a man named Dale, I'm never forgetting him, I still talk to him occasionally. So he took my hand 
and I panicked. And he said, what'd you come down the aisle for? And like any good teenage kid at church camp, I said, I came to rededicate my life. Um, some of you have heard this story. Um, the kind of punchline is that's not what I had actually gone down the aisle for. What I was responding to was a call to ministry at the age of 15 that I wouldn't answer for over a decade. So I look back on that and look at what God did in my life, that he called me at such an early age, and even though I didn't respond, he's been faithful to this day. Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, holds a huge part of my life and my heart every time I read it. And so I couldn't help but, but talk about that today when we talk about Jesus revealing himself. <clears throat> if you will, um, I was going to put it up on the screen, but it's a massive chunk of scripture. Um, but I'm going to read it for you. Matthew 14, 22 through 36. Um, oop, there it is. So Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000, and it seems like he's always um, just physically exhausted after these massive miracles. So he goes and he spends some time alone a lot of times, or he goes off by himself, or he takes his disciples and he goes somewhere, and this is one of those instances. So he feeds the 5,000, and it says, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake, with the disciples, uh, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over the land at Genereset, and when the, man, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country people, brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched were healed. That's the word of the God, our Lord, our Savior. There's some interesting um, hermeneutical stuff to talk about. Hermeneutics is the kind of the study of the surrounding um, era, history, uh, text, um, that's important to know before we talk about it a little bit. Um, one of those things is this idea of the fourth watch. Uh, in some translations, you'll see that mentioned. The Hebrew night, the 12-hour night, was actually divided into three watches, three, four-hour periods of time where someone would stay up. Um, 
and if, if you were sleeping out, someone would literally stay up and watch and make sure there weren't wild animals or thieves. Or if you're on a boat, it was important not to drift too far from shore or to look out for a storm. Um, so people would stay up during these watches. When the, when the Romans came in, um, they just had a different system. Theirs was the fourth watch. But what this tells us, um, in some texts, it says the fourth watch, which is the, the Roman system, that's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and it tells us roughly what time all of this took place. Um, this translation, it just says early in the morning, but we know that it was during this fourth watch from 3 to 6. Now, why is that important? Because depending on the time of year, from 3 to 6 a.m. out on the sea, you can see some stuff in the daylight because the sun's just starting to come up. And it's important that we know this because what they've witnessed is a miracle and it's out of the ordinary. And if it happened at night, you could kind of say, yeah, but I mean, was it some sort of trick? Was he holding a lantern? Were you closer to the shore maybe than you thought you were? But the fact that it was during the fourth watch means that there was probably a little bit of daylight. And it means that what they saw, they saw. And so they were immediately afraid. Which brings up the other thing. It was a ghost on the water. Now, in Jewish folklore, in Hebrew folklore during this time, the water was a very scary place. Not just because um, it could be dangerous, but because within Jewish tradition, um, it was somewhat like a graveyard. Spirits and ghosts could actually exist on the water. It was a special place that spirits were drawn to. And so they know what they see clearly, because we're probably in a little bit of daylight. And what they see is someone standing on the water. Now, there are, there are tales um, that are well known within Jewish tradition about um, basically cautionary tales about not saying hi to people that you see at night because they might be ghosts. And there's a very popular one um, about a female ghost that knew some people in a town and you didn't wave to her if you saw her because she was a ghost and she was on the water. So this is a very real thing to them, uh, most of them having you know, grown up Jewish here we are in the wee, wee hours of the morning, a little bit of sunlight, and there is definitely, definitely someone standing on the water, which is why they immediately say, it's a ghost, because that's where ghosts live, is on the water in the middle of the night. So it's really important before we start talking about this that we realize why some of the reactions are the way they are, but also the importance of the time frame in which all of this stuff happened. <clears throat> um, in the words of the uh, British comedy troupe Monty Python, now for something completely different. <clears throat> Let's talk about memes. <laughs> Who knows what a meme is? <clears throat> so there are these kind of funny pictures uh, that you post on the internet, right? And they normally are a picture accompanied by some phrases. This one's really funny. It's Willy Wonka. And he says, you constantly change lanes in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. 
You must get to your destination so much faster than everyone else. So memes hold this kind of special place in linguistics and in sociology, um, because one thing that memes do is that they hold double meanings. Um, there's been a lot of research and a lot of study about memes, especially like over the last four to five years with the increased use of memes. And the important thing is, is that not only is, is there meaning in the joke, right? We've all been behind someone who is constantly in and out of traffic. We get it. Like we get the, oh yeah, you got there super fast, didn't you? Because you're constantly changing lanes. I think we can all kind of see where this is going. But the, the second meaning and kind of the hidden meaning is the meaning behind either the structure of the sentences or the picture itself. In that, if you aren't familiar with this meme, you may not entirely get the joke because this meme has a specific structure. This meme might also have a specific picture that harkens back to a scene in a movie or a television show that unless you know that movie or television show, you don't fully understand the, the pithiness of the joke or the, or the tone in which it's meant. You might still somewhat get it, but you don't understand fully. Um, the way this meme is structured, and this is the most boring discussion about memes ever, and I'm really sorry, I'm going to break it down. <clears throat> but the structure of this meme is that he asks an insincere question, a question he doesn't really care to know the answer about, and then he gives a sarcastic statement or response in return. If you understand that, you not only understand the words, but you understand the meaning behind the words. And just for fun, I threw some more in. Oh, you got 100% on your science test. Tell me how you're as smart as Albert Einstein. You only drink diet soda? You must be so healthy. And my personal favorite, so you can actually read the King James Version of the Bible. You must be spiritually superior to those who can't understand its English. Ha! Theology joke. <clears throat> so memes hold special meaning because the words themselves mean something, but the context that the words fit into lend so much more to that meaning. The picture itself, the structure of the sentences, they lend more meaning to the joke itself than just the joke. Before memes existed, we had things like parallel stories and self-reference. You've heard David talk about um, the principle of first mention. It's one of those things in, in Bible scholarship, there's a certain weight to be lent to a phrase or a word um, the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. And when you see it show up, it's not on accident later. The context in which it was originally presented is a context you're supposed to take with you when you see it again. The same thing for parallel verses. If you've ever had a Bible with parallel verse numbers in the middle, that's what it's telling you. It's telling you, go back. This thing has context that you might not be aware of. The, the Christmas story is absolutely chock full of parallel verses because they hearken back to Isaiah and they hearken back to the prophets. And they're saying, look, 
Some of these things, they look like random events or random things that are being said or done, but they're not because hundreds, even thousands of years ago, someone said that this was going to happen, and it's really important that you know that this isn't just some kid being born. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. And much like a meme, there are things that we see in the Bible that hold so much more weight if you understand where exactly they come from. One of those things is this idea of the spirit on the water. Um, Oh, my verse is cut off. That's cool. Uh, So let's think about a ghost or a spirit on the water. Can we think of maybe the first time we've ever seen that in the Bible, the first time it's mentioned? It's Genesis 1-2, right? The New International Version says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right? There was a Spirit over the water. English Standard Version puts it this way, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But for our intents and purposes, the New American Standard Bible puts it, the best way possible. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There was a Spirit on the water. Jesus sends them ahead in a boat into the middle of a sea, and then comes to them like the Holy Spirit came to earth. It's not an accident, right? He could have come to them any other way, and it's such an odd thing. If you really think about it, if you separate the action itself of walking on water, it doesn't really serve a whole lot of purpose other than to illustrate to them, look at the power that I have. None of you can walk on water. No one you know can walk on water. But just like the Holy Spirit at the founding of earth, I'm walking on water. I'm moving over the surface of the water, and I'm coming to you. The other thing is a phrase that we see um, when the disciples are scared, right? And they freak out, and they say there's a ghost, right? And the phrase is, I am he. Jesus says, uh, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. That phrase, it is I, we see it in other places. The Greek is ego ami. It is, it is I. It's a, there's a futurative too. It's, it's also me in the future. It is I. It is me. So the immediate place that a lot of people go to is Exodus 3.14, um, which is when we see the burning bush. And what does he tell them to go tell the people? He says, tell them I am who I am. Now, the issue is there's not a really good direct translation because that's, that's in Hebrew in the Old Testament, right? And what we're seeing here, the, the iterations that we see are, are in Greek in the New Testament, um, in this portion in Matthew. But there is a really good